All right, let's begin with prayer. Welcome to all of you. I'm glad to see you again. And um, uh, this has been fun for me. I, 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 I teach a kind of boring subject matter, frankly, at, at Beeson. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of Hebrew, a lot of verbs. Any language teachers? Jim, do you teach any? You teach language? Eng- oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Verbs. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have brought us together again on this Thursday night. And we're reminded as the seasons come and as they go, as we enter into spring, Lord, that it, it is in your character, it's in your identity, in the revelation of your own name to be a God who kills things and then you, you bring them back to life. And as we enter into that season of spring, for those here who carry burdens that are unspoken, that are deep, I pray that you will give them the hope and the joy that even though you move in mysterious ways, that behind a frowning providence, there is a smiling face. And Lord, as we move together tonight with John Calvin, um, I pray that you'll give us humility before the subject matter. I pray that you'll guard us from making uh, a divine those who are human. But I also pray, Lord, that you'll give us the ears to hear and to learn from those doctors of the church that you have given us so that we can learn to read your word better. And Lord, if something happens tonight where there's clarity in the teaching and there's understanding from those who are here, then we know that it was your gift to us, and we thank you now for that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, well, tonight's Calvin. You know, I... This, this should be fun. I, I, um, I'm a little bit, I have trepidation about this because, as you see with this quote at the top of your handout, I'll read this to you. Calvin, this is a letter that Karl Barth wrote um, to his friend Edward Ternizen. And he said, Calvin is a waterfall, a primitive forest, a demonic power, something straight down from the Himalayas. Absolutely Chinese, strange, mythological. I just don't have the organs, the suction cups, even to assimilate this phenomenon, let alone describe it properly. <laughs> um, well, I appreciate that. I certainly empathize with Karl Barth. Karl Barth, this is a bona fide statement. It might sound hyperbolic. He was the most important theologian of the 20th century period. Um, and for him to say that, you know, I guess it makes me feel a little bit better about what we will attempt tonight. One thing about your handout, this is really hot off the press. And as you can tell, even in that quote, I've already noted like three or four typos. I apologize for that. But there will be more, I guarantee, before the night is over. English prof. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, okay, good, good. I like that. Um, I, you don't have this with you tonight, but I, I thought... I would be remiss to begin a talk on Calvin without a turning to the Bible. And so I wanted to do that tonight by reading the story from Acts 8 as kind of our entree into Calvin as a whole. Um, And I'm beginning at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, This is a desert place. And he arose and he went. 
which, by the way, is classic prophetic language. I mean, you see that again and again in the Bible. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, go down to the house of the potter. Next verse, and he did it, right? I mean, there's just this sort of, when God speaks, people tend to do it, which also makes, frankly, what happens in Jonah so fascinating, right? Go to Nineveh, and he went down to Joppa, right? I mean, it's good, yeah. So Philip's on the way. He's doing what he's told. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. So let, let's interpret that. Uh, this is a bigwig here, important person, a wealthy person, a court official. And he was returning. Um, he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning. So he's a God-fearer, a seeker, seated in his chariot, and he was in his chariot. I mean, there's so much here. I mean, normal people don't have chariots, right? I mean, so he's in his Lexus or whatever. <laughs> and... Uh, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, which is interesting. It gives you a little bit of the phenomenon of reading in the ancient world. They read out loud. To read, to read silently is really kind of a modern, a modern phenomenon in many ways. But they read out loud. Um, it was hard to read, so they had to work hard at it. And he's, he's reading this most likely in Greek. Um, and, and by the way, owning a scroll, the fact that he has a scroll that he's reading is another a huge uh, a statement about this person's social status. This is a wealthy person. Normal people didn't have scrolls, but he did. So he heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. This will be familiar to you all. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and notice these lines, very careful from Luke, and beginning with this scripture, not ending there, but beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, this is fat. I love this text. So he comes up to the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch's reading the Isaiah. Philip asks this very probing question, which reminds me, by the way, it's, it's a good way, now this is moralizing, forgive me, but it's a good way to engage people, you know, not, not sort of accuse them, there's no idea you know what's going on there, is there, Mr. Eunuch? It's, it's a question, it serves the conscience. And then, uh, and then the, the, the eunuch says, well, how can I unless somebody teaches me? It's a posture of humility from this eunuch, which, by the way, we're going to see what Calvin has to say about that in a second. And then he comes up and he begins to explain to him from this text and from the scriptures what, that all of this is pointing to, to Christ. Um, and, and then uh, they come along. This is powerful here. And they were going along the road. They came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? He had the scripture. Now he's ready for the sacrament. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. There's a kind of etiology here for, the, for really the beginning of the church in Ethiopia, which, by the way, exists in, in, to this day. Now, what's going on here? Why am I reading Acts 8? Because in many ways, we can understand Calvin in this story as Philip. 
Calvin is that figure within the history of the church, within that period of the Reformation, who saw himself primarily as one who was meant to help and to aid men and women in their reading and understanding of the scriptures. Um, Randall Zachman, who I'll refer to quite a bit tonight, um, in his very good book on John Calvin, says, from the very beginning of his adherence, this is in your handout, to the evangelical movement. And what do we mean by the evangelical movement? To the gospel movement. To the, to the Reformation principle, that of the solas of the Reformation. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. All these solas. His turning to the evangelical movement from his Catholic past in France. He was a law student and, and the universities there, at the Sorbonne, I think Orleans as well. Um, when he turned to the evangelical movement, which forced him eventually to leave France as an exile and never return to his homeland. This is quite something, actually. Calvin, above all else, sought to restore the proper and the fruitful reading of Scripture to every Christian, no matter how learned that person might be. I, I pulled off the shelf Calvin's commentary on Acts and said, well, I wonder what Calvin has to say about this text. Well, let, let's read some of these. And by the way, just to brace you, okay, I mean, I'm sure you feel this way with Luther. You'd feel this way with the fathers if you read them. Um, they, they just don't talk to their congregants with kid gloves. They don't do that. I've been reading, I've been reading with my students at Beeson uh, Calvin's sermons on Micah. We, we've just finished those um, uh, yesterday, actually. And, um, and it's interesting, Calvin preached on Micah in the early, uh, in the early 40s. Actually, early 40s or the early 50s, 1550s, 1540s. And he would preach every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday as well. And then Sunday they would do New Testament and then back to, the, to Micah. And you come along to December the 25th, right? Christmas Day. Now, they didn't celebrate really the day of Christmas in that time, in Geneva at least, until Sunday. So they would suspend the celebration of the day until Sunday, but it was Christmas Day. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. I thought, my goodness, Calvin, you've got no political sensibility about you, do you? Um, he looks out at the congregation. It's December the 25th. It's Thursday. And he says, my, there's a lot of you here today. All right. You come because you think today's something magical, don't you? Right. And then he sort of berates them for not coming more often. You're like, it's, 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 the, people, it's the Christmas people who just show up. He's like, you know what? I guess I'm glad to have you, but why don't you come a little bit more often? What are you, is this magic to you or something like that? I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's surprising and frankly a little bit shocking how direct Calvin could be. And there's a lot of, maybe, there's a lot of personal explanations for that. So listen to what he says here on, on Acts, on the eunuch. But rich men, and of course he's going to speak primarily in the masculine pronoun here, but, with, but rich men think that they have great injury done them if any man speak homely to them. I mean, what is it that Philip is asked? Do you understand what you're reading? That's kind of a put-off question. Like, what, am I not smart enough to understand that? And therefore, they break out by and by into these speeches. Like, what is that to thee? Or what hast thou to do with me? But the eunuch submitted himself humbly to Philip. That, and forgive the typo, that by him he may be taught. It's interesting there, isn't it? That, you, that eunuch actually demonstrates for us the proper hearer, we're going to come back to this, of the word. He goes on to say, For Calvin, the expression of the eunuch's modesty and humility was, in fact, his demonstrated credentials as a scholar. It's a wonderful turn of phrase here from Calvin. Nevertheless, let us remember that the eunuch did so confess his ignorance, that yet notwithstanding he was one of God's scholars when he read the scripture. 
This is, I mean, it's a great turn of phrase. In other words, what proves the eunuch's scholarly credentials here? He admits with humility that he doesn't understand everything that he's reading. That's his demonstration of his scholarly credentials. A, a bit like the Apostle Paul saying, if I have to prove to you that I'm an apostle, if you're forcing me into a corner to prove it to you, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to lift my toga and let you see my scars on my back. Because apostles suffer. I'm going to let you see my suffering. Here Calvin says, the, the scholar is the person that admits ignorance in the face of this enormous task. This is the true reverence of Scripture, says Calvin. When as we acknowledge that there is that wisdom laid upon, laid up there which surpasseth all our senses, and yet notwithstanding, we do not loathe it. I want to unpack this here. We do not loathe it, but we read diligently. We depend upon the revelation of the Spirit, and we desire to have an interpreter given us. Let's break that down into three points right there. Just look at that quote. We do not loathe it. I mean, can you appreciate that, right? I mean, you, how many of you have tried this before? All right, this year I'm going to read through my Bible. I've done this. I've failed at this so many times miserably. It's painful to admit, right? I'm going to read through my Bible this year. And so I start reading Genesis, get through that. It's kind, of, kind of rocky. I uh, get to, um, to Exodus. There's some fun stuff in there. It gets a little bit weird toward the end. And then Leviticus, I'm like, I don't know about this, right? I'm, I, and then Numbers, I'm out, right? It's like silver, right? <laughs> Why? I mean, there's a sense in which when you wrestle with the Bible, all of us do this. That we wish, at least sometimes, I wish that I had something, that it was something other than what it is. Um, it's, it can be terse. Its literary quality isn't always great. I hope that doesn't bother you that I'm talking that way about the Bible, because I, I really love the Bible. But, but as far as like storytelling and the imagination and filling in gaps and dramatic pause, I mean, it, the Bible can just be completely disappointing at times. And, and, and not to mention sort of getting into the prophets. You know, even Luther said that the prophets have such a strange way of talking. They, they ramble on from one subject matter to the other. Who knows what they're talking about? Who can put all this together? And so I think we feel that Calvin is recognizing this as well in the eunuch by saying here he is reading Isaiah 53, not understanding what he's reading, but he doesn't loathe it. He doesn't walk away from it. He doesn't chunk it and say, you know what, I'll go into something a little bit more palatable something a little bit more understandable. He doesn't. He remains there in the discipline of that. Then he reads it diligently, depending on the revelation of the Spirit, with the desire to have someone come and interpret and teach. What is this reformation of the Scripture that's happening in this period of the 16th century? It's a reformation that's goal, whose goal, and Calvin was very strong on this, was to place the Bible into the hands of ordinary Christians. So normal people should be reading the Bible. It's the need, number two, for godly interpreters who will faithfully preach and teach the Bible. So ordinary Christians, this sort of division that had happened between the laity and the clergy, which is, by the way, a division that isn't completely overcome in the Reformation. There's still clergy and those who are ordained to the teaching office. But the division that the Bible belongs in the hands of the clergy and the laity are there just to listen to and to receive the official teaching of the church, that was overcome in the Reformation. Now, I'm not saying it's always clear and easy to understand the implications of that, but the point is the people in the pew, to use that terminology, are meant to be given the Bible. Give the Bible to the people and let it be unleashed. That's one of Calvin's famous phrases out of the Institutes. Do we defend the Bible, Calvin says? 
Do we get in this kind of apologetic enterprise to defend it? Well, maybe. And if that's your gift, go out and do it. But Calvin says that's kind of like defending a lion. You don't defend a lion, do you? You just kind of go to the cage and step behind it and open it and let the lion out to do its work. That's how Calvin understood the Bible. Just release it. Don't be scared of it. Let the, the gospel is not fragile in that sense. Let the Bible get out there and to do its work and let there be godly interpreters and preachers and teachers who would come and help rightfully and carefully explain that to the men and women of the faith. And what's the goal of this? The goal is restoring the reading of Scripture for the transformation of God's people. It's not just Bible study, period, right? Because you know what? I just kind of get my intellectual fire you know, lit that way. And some people are like that. And that's okay. I get my intellectual fire lit in the study of the Bible. I like it. But that's not an end for Calvin. Like maybe some people get their intellectual fire you know, lit by, I don't know, the study of mating patterns of Galapagos turtles. You know, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, people have different intellectual interests. Um, and some of you have fascinating ones, I'm sure. But for Calvin, the study of the Bible was not an end in of itself. The end was that we would stand before the mirror of Scripture that witnesses to Jesus Christ by the Spirit, and standing in that mirror, it would transform the readers and the hearers to more and more conform to the image of His Son as they witness away from themselves to Christ. It was for transformation. It's for renewal. It was for growth. The Christian life is a pilgrim life. With the Scripture there to aid us, with the Scriptures there to guide us, to discipline us, to rebuke us, and to encourage us. I, I want to say this here because there's so much of Calvin that frankly can be frustrating. Um, let me kind of give you a little back view on his life. Calvin was a scholar extraordinaire, a law student, very sharp. His first publication was a commentary on De Clementia by Seneca that was published to sort of establish him as a classical scholar of repute, rising up in the ranks to be recognized as a classical scholar. The evangelical doctrines that were permeating that part of, of Europe at that time got a hold of him. And then he was forced out because he was involved in some subversive work there within Paris. He was forced out, and he was on his way just to live the life of a scholar by himself in a library, doing his scholarly work, writing his his, his commentaries, writing his institutes, that's not quite the way, right way of framing it, but he wanted to be a scholar in isolation, and God would have none of it. Guillaume Farrell, his dear friend, maybe, um, found him on the way to Geneva in this sort of, he's very young, Calvin here is now in his, in his late 20s, and he tells Calvin that God has called you here to serve in this particular place. Calvin didn't want to be in Geneva. He wasn't even interested in being in Geneva. And basically, Guillaume Farrell told him, William Farrell said, if you, if you don't come to, to, to Geneva, God might just strike you dead. And you know what? Calvin believed him. And so he ends up going to Geneva. Farrell, who's this thunderous prophet of a figure, not a kind person, very divisive, um, just caused, wreaked havoc almost everywhere that he went. I mean, he's just that kind of guy. And, and, and Calvin and, and Pharrell were kind of birds of a feather. They flocked together. Uh, and, they, and they ended up getting run out of Geneva. Calvin, they didn't want him there anymore. Calvin ends up in Strasbourg, becomes mentored by Martin Bootser there. He learns a great deal from Bootser. Um, but, but Calvin, frankly, 
um, always probably viewed himself, at least if Gordon's biography on Calvin is correct, viewed himself as the intellectual superior in the room. He, he did. And he would um, even sometimes go so far as to criticize in very vitriolic language his superiors, like Bootser, like, um, uh, and others within, within the Reformed tradition and uh, the Reformation movement. And to the point that one time a good friend of his said, you are wrong. And Calvin really repented of that. The way in which uh, Gordon describes this is fascinating. He repented of that, and he was aware of that. But rarely, if ever, will you hear Calvin say, um, and I was wrong. You know, in other words, he will say, I lost my cool there. I lost my temper there. I wasn't modest there. But very rarely will you hear Calvin say that I was wrong. He, he, was a, he could be a difficult person. Um, as a matter of fact, it was Pharrell and Bootser's kind of goal together to get Calvin married. He was 30 years old. He was a bachelor, demonstrating all the character traits of a bachelor at that particular time, of a scholar bachelor. They wanted to get him married, and he said very clearly to them, you just need to understand, I'm not interested in you know, a woman who's just pretty. I mean, most guys will see a woman, she's got a nice figure. This is Calvin's day. I'm paraphrasing. But he said, they like a fine figure, they fall head over heels, and they're done. Calvin said, I don't want any of that. I want a woman who's fastidious, who's modest, who's chaste, and who might look after my health. <laughs> and he ended up getting it. It's like a fascinating story. I won't go into all the details. But Calvin's life is fascinating. He's complex. He's a difficult person. I'm not sure really that Calvin gets better, right, in his sanctification as he gets older. In some ways, he kind of gets a bit crustier, actually. But Calvin is a towering figure. And he's a figure who... Um, gave to us a body of doctrine, which we'll talk about before the night is over, that helped shape the way in which we read the Bible that has continued to have enduring effects and implications both in Europe and in, in, and in the U.S. I did want to read this to you of Calvin, um, of this quote from Gordon's biography. I commend this to you. Uh, Bruce Gordon's biography on Calvin, if you have any interest in this. Matter of fact, if you're interested in in medieval Europe, I mean, the, the, the social contextualization, this is outstanding. Um, Calvin was French. He was French. And, and Geneva was a French-speaking place. But that his nationality, frankly, in Switzerland always caused a certain kind of tension with the local Genevans and, and Calvin. So that the French thing, the Huguenots ended up going into Geneva. They kind of took over because they were powerful and wealthy. I mean, there's just, there was... It was, it was a political and social nightmare, what was going on in Reformation Europe. It really was. Um, and he really sets that out quite well. I think it's beyond my pay grade. But I wanted to read this to you, because I think we tend to think of Calvin as that guy. <laughs> right? It sort, sort of stayed. He, he struggled with hemorrhoids, you could tell. Um, <laughs> all his life he did. And would have, he would, I mean, we're talking about serious trouble with kidney stones as well. I mean, the, the, where he would, he would send letters to his friends and, and say something to the, and this is all in this biography here, I've been on the floor for three days, you know, and, and, and just, and the way, you know, they didn't hold back in their language and you know, describing their pain and their symptoms. Um, it was, it was, it's rough. But listen to this, just so that I can put it in context and then we'll go to, to what we really want to talk about tonight. The enduring image of Calvin as an unyielding, moralistic and stone-faced tyrant who rejected all the pleasures of life has been his opponent's greatest victory. The iconography of the Frenchman has hardly helped matters like this picture. Above all, 
The Reformation Monument in Geneva, some of you may have seen this monument, of the reformers there in Geneva, which cast him to look like some forgotten figure of Middle Earth. I mean, it's like he's right out of some, some a Tolkien novel. His sermons reveal a man whose attitudes toward material things are far more interesting and textured than his reputation suggests. The fruits of the world, according to Calvin, are not simply for subsistence, but rather to be enjoyed. Good wine, good food, conversation, friendship, the pleasures of children, and of marital relations. That was, by the way, a polemic against Calvin. For many years after he died, the man just had no interest in sex. That was kind of a polemic. Well, but it's probably not true. He was fond of wine, and indeed, when the nobleman Jacques de Bourgogne was preparing to come to Geneva, Calvin purchased a barrel of fine wine for him in anticipation of his arrival. The drinking of a glass of wine was for him associated with the most pleasurable things of life, laughing with friends, sharing a meal with intimates, music, and art. Naturally, he preached against gross consumption of worldly goods and immodesty. I mean, he talks in his micro-sermons against avarice with a certain kind of edge to it that's hot out of the pulpit. Nothing is worse than avarice and greed. His own sense of style, however, allowed him to admire clean lines and simplicity. He liked what was tasteful. In his correspondence, he could let drop a line that indicated an eye for beautiful buildings and a well-dressed woman. His painted portraits reveal his modest yet evident elegance, a good quality cloak or gown with fur collar, nothing ostentatious or extravagant. The fine things of life point to a gracious God. Through the eyes of faith, the elect enjoy these things not as momentary pleasures, but as, the, but as the revelation of God's love. That is right out of the Augustine playbook. Love of God is central to what fi- defines our identity. Well, then how then do we, I love my wife? How then do I love my children? How then do I love a good glass of wine? How do I do that? You do that by loving God. It's not compartmentalized. I do that as an expression of my love for God. The Christian life is not just about suffering. Though there was enough of that in the 16th century. Think about the plague and wars. The wonders of creation and the joys of life, when viewed through the lens of faith, sustain and nourish the pilgrim along the journey. It's a nice, I think, little counterpart or counterpoint to the way in which we typically think of Calvin. For those of you who maybe have a certain kind of notion of Calvin as this staid figure who struggled with kidney stones and all the other problems that he had. He was a man who enjoyed life, but he was a man who had a clear vision. I should also say as well, if you ever get a chance to read, and you can find it in an individual book, Calvin's Golden Rule for Christian Living, or the Golden Booklet, which comes out of the Institutes, there Calvin talks as well about the sufferings of life. He was very clear about the sufferings of life, and that it's it's a stoic view on life um, to say that when Christians suffer, they should suffer and bear it up. You know, stiff upper lip kind of Christianity, brave heart Christianity. Now, just lay there on the on the on the block and let yourself be gutted in front of all the world. I mean, that Calvin called that stoicism, not Christianity. We suffer in this world, we grieve in this world, we cry in this world. When his wife Adelette died, Calvin sent letters to his friends saying, "I'm in the throes of pain over the loss of my wife." I mean, deep suffering. Calvin also said, though, and this is the part that I think sometimes makes us uncomfortable. But Calvin also said that God will send suffering our way. He will give discipline to us as a kind and loving father. 
even though it doesn't feel that way. Why? Because when the sufferings of this life come to us, what it does is to show us that we are pilgrims, that this is not our home, that our final destination is another time and another place. And you want to know the illustrations that he gives? I hope this is making you uncomfortable. But this is what he says. He says, sometimes maybe God might just give you a difficult wife or a difficult husband, right? Just to remind you that this world is you're just passing through. Or, or maybe God might give you children who, who aren't, who are willful and disobedient, difficult, just to remind you that this world is not your home, uh, you're just passing through. You know, I just heard Stanley Hauerwas say this re- recently in, in a lecture that, you know, he's, he's realizing in his life that, you know, no one ever marries the right person, they always marry the wrong person, and we never get the children that we want. Right? He's like, it's, it's, and, and, well, that's overstated. Um, but the point is, we're pilgrims along the way. And the suffering that comes into our life is a reminder to us, even though it is a difficult providence, a frowning providence, a hard providence, that behind it we recognize a smiling face that tells us this world is not your home, you are just passing through. And we await a future time and a future place. To put it in creedal language, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. All right, next page. Calvin on the Christian. Lay and ordained. Now this is important here. He viewed the Christian, both those who were lay and those who were ordained, as both student and teacher. They were both student and teacher. Even a pastor, even a preacher, even a doctor of the church, which, and we're going to come to this in a second, Calvin was one of those rare figures who was both of those things. Even a pastor and a doctor of the church will always, to the end of his or her life, be both teacher and student. In his commentary on Acts, Calvin commends Apollos. Because Apollos, I hope this isn't offensive, but it's not meant to be. But Apollos actually learns from two women, Aquila and Priscilla, who have no formal training. And I want you to hear this from what he says on his comments on Acts 18.26. Aquila and Priscilla are not devoted to themselves with the result that they are not envious of another man's ability. Again, Apollos was unusually modest, for he allowed himself to be taught and refined not only by a manual worker, but also by a woman. Now that sounds really offensive, but given the context, you can appreciate it maybe. For he was mighty in Scripture, I mean, Apollos is this, was a great, apparently great rhetorician, knew his Bible, great teacher. Some have argued that Apollos wrote Hebrews. I don't buy that argument, but some, some have argued that. For he was mighty in Scripture, far superior to them in knowledge. But those who could have given the impression of being hardly suitable ministers, giving him the finishing touches about what makes the kingdom of Christ complete. We see also that at that time women were not so unacquainted with the word of God as the papists wished to have them. That's not very nice, but what he's saying there is, you know, the Roman Catholics at this particular time and place would be happy for the women to remain in ignorance. But these women seem to know their Bible, since we see that one of the chief teachers of the church was taught by a woman. Look at the next quote here. For no one will ever be a good teacher, says Calvin, if he does not show himself or herself teachable and always ready to learn. I'm not sure Calvin always lived up to that, okay? But at least he's saying the right thing here. 
shows himself to be teachable, always ready to learn, and the man will never be met who is so self-sufficient in the fullness and completeness of his knowledge that he would gain nothing by listening to other people, both the teacher and the student. And you think about that. That's not just for preachers and teachers. That's for all of us here. All of us are in the position in our Christian lives that we are both teachers of God's Word and we are students of God's Word. All of us, somewhere along the way. We're teaching, whether it's children, whether it's our church, whether it's our peers, whether it's to ourselves, right? We are teaching and talking about the Word of God. All of us are, and all of us are in a position to be learners. And the sign of a good learner is someone that's teachable, that's modest, that's humble, that recognizes that one person alone does not have the corner on revelation. They don't. I, I warn my students at Beeson Divinity School about this. I call it the danger of seminary disease. Because <laughs> you know what happens in the seminary? They get smart, all right? They learn a little Greek, they learn a little Hebrew, take a few classes, read a little bit of Kant, right? Well, I've read Kant now, the original Kant. And now, you know, there's sort of a little intellectual superiority, superiority begins to sort of creep up. And now they become lifelong critics of every sermon they hear. Right? And there's a real danger in that. Right? There's a real danger in getting to a place where, you know what? Um, somebody doesn't have a professional degree in whatever. And, you know, I'm actually in the position to be the teacher here and not necessarily the whatever. The, the illustration that I use of this with my students is, is my mother who, by the way, who will be here next Thursday night. This is my mother, and I won't talk about her then. Um, but it's my mother. My mother, had, my mother got her GED, you know, dropped out of high school, never went to college. Um, but I cannot think, I don't have a picture in my mind. This is one of God's good gifts to me. I don't have a picture of my mo- in my mind of my mother at night in her bed without the lamp on and the Bible open. All, all of my life. I just don't have any other picture than my mother there, Bible open, lamp on. She's, she's going to read something before she goes to bed. I would be, f- and I've got a professional degree in Bible. I've put a lot of work in this sort of the, 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 just the nuts and bolts of Bible study. That's how I make my living. I pay the mortgage, right? <laughs> I would be foolish. It'd be the height of hubris if in a conversation with my mother on the phone, if some insight that she had into the word, I weren't in a position to say, I need to hear that. I want to hear what you have to say. Um, you know, degrees don't give wisdom, do they? God gives wisdom. And here is Apollos submitting himself to Aquila and Priscilla to learn. Here are teachers within the church saying, you know what, I have something to learn there. And, or, or, and always being in that position of, of modesty. Why? Because no one has the corner on revelation. No one has a capacious enough mind to encapsulate the sum total of the subject matter that we engage. I don't want to steal my thunder from next week with Bart, but Bart was wonderful on this. Bart said, we might have great lawyers, we might have great statesmen, and great doctors, and great businessmen, but we only have little theologians. We only have little pastors and teachers. Why? Because of the enormity of the subject matter, the enormity of it. It's a good lesson, I think, that we learn here from Calvin to say that all of us lay ordained, and I'm lay, I'm not ordained, all of us lay and ordained on this journey that we're on, this pilgrim journey, where Scripture shapes the way in which we view the world so that we begin to see the world. This is Calvin's imagery here. We begin to see the world through the lens of the Bible, God's revelation in Jesus. It's the way in which I begin to view the world. I don't check it out. 
I'm not compartmentalizing my life so that I do my kind of Jesus thing here and then I go and do my other life here. No, all of life begins to be viewed through the lens of the scriptures. And maybe better than Calvin's idea there is that the Bible, theology, the Trinity, that actually provides for us the retina, not just the lens, but the retina that allows us to even see in the first place. And this is, the, I think, a great, a great lesson that I've learned from Calvin, even in preparing for you all, is this position of being both teacher and student for the rest of our lives, all of us. Don't you admire that in the people that you want to hear teach? Don't you admire that? I certainly do. I visited, um, before he died, uh, one of my heroes in biblical scholarship is Brevard Childs. I think Brevard Childs is probably one of the most important biblical scholars, biblical theologians of the last part of the 20th century, taught at Yale Divinity School for, for many years. My, my doctoral supervisor provided me an opportunity to go down to Cambridge from Scotland, spend the day with Brevard Childs. He was in his 80s. And I sat there, I mean, just a, you know, a snotty-nosed doctoral student, you know, you know, thought I knew a lot more than I really did. And there I was, and here's this 80-year-old man, I mean, a giant in the field, asking me questions like, why don't you think this happened here? Or what would you think about this? And then I saw on his, 80, I saw on his shelf, a Berlitz Guide to Italian. I said, Professor Childs, what's that? He said, well, Anne, that was his wife. Anne and I are, are heading to Italy for a small trip. I thought I'd try to learn a little Italian before I went. 80 years old, I thought, bingo. That's, uh, there's, there's something inviting about that. And that's, but, but when it comes even more so to, with the Bible, to be a learner to the, to the day that we die. It's a, good, it's a good place to be. All right, Calvin as doctor and pastor. Oh, we've got to press on here. Calvin understood um, several offices in the church, but the bigger ones would be the doctor of the church and the pastor. The doctor of the church is the, that, that figure who by his work, by his writing, is a shepherd of the church at large. Kind of a shepherd of shepherds, a, a pastor of pastors, a teacher of teachers. Whereas a pastor is more locally oriented, who teaches people in that particular congregation. Calvin was one of those unusual figures that actually was both a doctor of the church and a pastor there in the city of, of Geneva. He wrote the Institutes of, Christ, of the Christian Religion. I brought a copy of that and here, volume one. Um, this is the Library of Christian Classics. This is kind of the standard edition, I believe, of the Institutes. He wrote, let me count this here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight editions of this. The first one came out in 1536. I hate to tell you this. He was 27 years old. Right? And then the 1539 edition is where some significant changes occur, all the way up until the final edition in 1559, which is the one that most of us probably read. But what is the goal? Why did he write the Institutes of the Christian Religion? And this, by the way, is this book right here. These two volumes are probably what put Calvin on the map and have left him on the map. He was one of the few figures within the Reformation to give a complete body of religion and doctrine. He's one of the few. So in that sense, Calvin is quite, is quite unique. Um, but what was his goal in writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion? To hand you a ready-made systematic theology? Well, in one sense, yes. But it wasn't an end. See, I think we tend to think of, we do our Bible study to get to our systematic theology. 
like our big sort of architectonic view of, of, of the world of theology of God and the Bible. But for Calvin, it kind of worked the other way. That he began with this body of religion with the goal of then going to the Bible to be better readers of the Bible for the rest of our lives. And this is what he said in the preface. By the way, this preface was came out in the 1539 edition of the Institutes, but was then there for the rest of them all the way up until the final edition. I have this in your handout. Moreover, this is his uh, his uh, preface to the to, Fre- to Frederick. Moreover, it has been my purpose in this labor to prepare and instruct candidates in sacred theology for the reading of the divine word in order that they may be able both to have easy access to it and to advance in it without stumbling. So you see his goal? So that they can be readers of the word of the Bible. For I believe I have... So, no, that's a little bit... I wouldn't say this, but go ahead, Calvin. For I believe I have so embraced the sum of religion in all its parts and have arranged it in such an order that if anyone rightly grasps it, it will not be difficult for him to determine what he ought especially to seek in Scripture. That's the goal. And to what end he ought to relate its contents. That is, understand this sort of um, cacophonous thing that we call the Bible. If after this road has, as it were, been paved, I shall publish any interpretation of Scripture, I shall always condense them, because I shall have no need to undertake long doctrinal discussions. You want a long doctrinal discussion? Come to the Institutes and to digress into commonplaces. And by the way, after the 1539 edition, Calvin did his first commentary on Romans that then came out in 1540. And if you were to sort of set up the corpus of Calvin, right, his major works, you'd have the Institutes and then you'd have a shelf full of Calvin's commentaries on the Bible. That's how he, now he was editing the Institutes for the rest of his life, but what was his primary what how did he primarily identify his role as a doctor of the church? Not necessarily the Institutes per se, although that was very important. But it was his ongoing role as a commentator, as a preacher, as a teacher of the word of God. That's what he did. And it's an, it's actually an enormous achievement to go and to see the this, the detailed attention that Calvin gave um, to to the study of the Bible. And his preferred method, um, he wasn't a fan of the lectionary, his preferred method was Lectio Continua. He liked to preach through whole books, so he's going to start at Micah 1 and he's going to end at Micah 7. That was his way of preaching and teaching. And this may be of interest to you, I can't remember if it was Deuteronomy or Ezekiel, it was one of those two where he was expelled from Geneva the first time, exiled. And he had to stop his preaching. And he leaves for many years, and then he comes back, and the next sermon was like, and where did we leave off? <laughs> yes. So the Institutes had a goal. As we can see, said Zachman, from this brief survey, Calvin, as doctor of the Catholic Church, uses the summary of doctrine in the Institutes to open access to the genuine meaning of Scripture and to limit his students to the teaching of Scripture alone. I mean, it's very important. Calvin's theology is an attempt to bring these articles of religion, the institutes of religion, into accord with the Bible itself, so that there's this dialectical relationship between the institutes itself and the way in which the Bible and all of the complexities of the Bible forces onto Calvin the proper way of shaping theology. Now, it doesn't mean that Calvin is always successful, but the method that he employs to do that is actually extremely important. Calvin wanted his theology to be consistent with the Word of God. 
and always to be brought under scrutiny of the Word of God, because that was its goal. Because true transformation comes by the hearing of the Word, not necessarily by abstract reflections on doctrine. It's by attending to the Word of God. Now, moving on, we see his commentaries. In his commentaries, Calvin was really exercising his office as doctor of the church. And this has been a surprise to me, actually, um, because... Uh, I, I have Calvin's commentary on Micah. This is what I've been sort of spending some time in. And I have Calvin's sermons on Micah. And the sermons on Micah are expansive. I mean, the kind of thought that Calvin could give to an exposition of two verses really is a thing to behold. I encourage, and by the way, you can get those sermons on Micah for something like 20 bucks with a, a Presbyterian and Reformed publishers. It's a really uh, inexpensive volume. This rich, thoughtful, pastoral application of this text to his particular hearers. It's long, it's expansive, it's pastoral, it's confrontational. He's going after the leaders of the people, both religiously and politically. He speaks directly to them in ways that's kind of shocking, actually, in the pulpit, realizing that they're sitting right there, and he's talking to them in the pulpit. But his commentaries are much more streamlined, much more laconic in nature. Why is that? I kind of wrestled with that. And then it sort of dawned on me. Well, the commentaries are what are Calvin exercising his office as a doctor of the church. He doesn't necessarily know how to take what's going on in Micah 1, 1 and 2 and apply it to Strasbourg in that moment. Or to Bern. Or to Wittenberg. Or to wherever this commentary might end up. That's the work of the pastor to get a general sense of what the text is saying, and then the pastor is to do the work of bringing that to bear on his particular local congregation. So the commentaries function for Calvin as a doctor of the church, whereas his sermons are much more pastoral, much more directed to the particular concerns there in Geneva. Now forgive some of these um, typos that I have here, but I wanted to give you this quote uh, from Calvin. Here's a little pastoral moment out of Micah few typos here but when it comes to profiting from the school of god we forget what we are taught by the way this is why calvin's this is these are calvin's comments on micah 1 1 to 2 why are these prophecies of micah even put into writing he spoke the word he spoke it to the people of god they heard these words why are they now put into writing for posterity's sake here's the answer god has to repeat the lesson again and again Therein we see how insatiable mankind's curiosity is for the new and the novel. As so many say, and why not? Every day we hear of God and of Jesus Christ and of his grace which flows from his death and passion. How many times do we have to hear that our sins have been forgiven? Isn't once enough? Or that we should put our trust in his sacrifice? That could just be said in a few words. And once it's said, it's quite understood. Yes, says Calvin. But let us consider how we do put our trust in him. On the contrary, <laughs> try this sometime when you're counseling somebody. We are such infidels <laughs> that even if our ears were buffeted with his teachings every day, we would still not remember them. If we are told what to do, who actually does it? Very few. True. Once we have genuinely profited from his teachings and received them as we ought, then we can say enough. But that will never happen as long as we live on this earth 
Thus, God has to continually address us in order to confirm us in what we already know to be true. What a great turn of phrase from Calvin there. Do you know what that's saying as well? It's a little jibe to some of my Presbyterian friends. I've got some of that deep in my heart. Not you, Adam. Um, You know, there's a kind of danger, I think, within a certain stream of the Reformed thought that says something like, well, Calvin said this about the Bible, full stop. Or the Westminster Confession of Faith says this about the Bible, this particular interpretation, full stop. I don't think Calvin would have understood that. I really don't. I think for Calvin, there would have been a pressure on, the, on, on those who are going into the teaching office to say, yes, we are living within a theological tradition. We're not kind of coming at this in a brute fact of way. We come with a particular theological way of reading this text. But it behooves the preacher and the teacher of the Bible to continue to wrestle with the Bible again and again for his or her particular congregants. Why? Because the Bible is alive and we're infidels. That's why. It's not enough just to say, this is what they said way back then, full stop. We need to listen to them, hear what they had to say, the godly wisdom that they had. But it's not enough just to repeat them slavishly in an imitating fashion. We have to press on so that the Word of God will continue to do its corrective, instructing, and encouraging work in our day. I, I didn't plan on saying that, but there you have it. Now, what about Calvin's exegetical preaching method? Lucid brevity, or brevitas, was a virtue to be praised in biblical commentary. This is something that Calvin picked up from his study of classical authors. Calvin valued Cicero's linking of wisdom with eloquence. Brevitas. Um, Melanchthon. Check that. Bootser. Um, who was a mentor to Calvin, kind of came under Calvin's uh, critical eye in some of his writings when he said, what you have said is of sound and good doctrine, but a little bit on the prolix side, a little verbose, a little long-winded, you know, tone it down. Lucid brevity was something that Calvin really valued in commentary, and if you go to that and you read his commentaries, you will see that. There's a clarity, there's a simplicity, There's an eloquence that's met with wisdom in his commentaries that, frankly, is a simplicity on the far side of complexity, not a simplicity on the short side of complexity, the kind of, you know, jargon, slogan, um, bumper sticker approaches to Christianity, God is my co-pilot kind of stuff. It's not that kind of simplicity, but it's a simplicity that presses into the complexity of the text itself pushes through that complexity. And by the way, you've all heard preachers and teachers, I'm one of them, right, who sort of just leave you in the complexity. Wow, that is hard stuff. Thanks, we got it. But Calvin didn't leave us here as there. He pressed through it to the simplicity, that that brevitas, that that lucid clarity and brevity. I have come to value that more and more. You know, again, I wouldn't be legalistic about this, but, um, I mean, some of you know this is true, right? Oh, I'm going to regret saying this. Most of the 50-minute sermons that I, I hear regularly would be better in 20. Right? Or think about these Christian books that you read, which are really good. I read them too. Right? I've got my Amazon checklist. Right? But how many of these Christian books really say anything that different after chapter 3? 
Is that that's a horribly that's a horribly pretentious thing to say. I don't mean it that way, but it's kind. Of, it, I mean, after you say, okay, I've read that's really good. That's really it's really good. And then there's a you know a hundred thousand more words, right? Um, I think there's a real challenge from Calvin that that brevity and clarity, eloquence and wisdom come together to create a really powerful rhetorical tool. Why? To aid the hearers of God's word. That's the goal, so that the people can understand. So that they can get a sense of what's of what's going on. Clarity. Another key term for Calvin is accommodation. That is the fitting of language and co- concepts rhetorically for the sake of the hearers. Why? Because God has accommodated himself to us in the revelation of, of his word and finally in the person of his son. God, this is a real philosophical conundrum that we just have to say God did that. He determined to do that, and that's all I need to say about it. But do you know that God has communicated his own infinite identity to us in words? Words. Like human language. Like and and the. And Greek words like anthropos and kairos or whatever. He's communicated his own identity to us in, in, in words. What Calvin refers that to, frankly, is God prattling to us like a like a parent that goes to the baby in the crib and goes, right? Or let's, or like with Franklin, my three-year-old. Now we're going to play. I don't do that to him, but you know, kids. Do you? Do you can you? It, God's prattling to us. He's accommodating to us. That His infinite identity is being accommodated to us in human language, in the in the covenant of the Bible, that one history of God's engagement with His people, that's finally revealed in, in His Son. Accommodation. Three, um, there is a danger, I think, in confusing the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, with nuda scriptura, the scriptures stripped of anything else, right? No creed but Jesus. It's me, Jesus, and my Bible. doesn't matter what the the church history has said. Creeds, they don't matter. That's just a kind of human tradition thing. It's just me and Jesus and the Bible. That's a kind of stripped-down version of sola scriptura that the reformers, at least the magisterial reformers, would not have understood. Because Calvin, again and again, feels the pressure, um, the honored pressure, to appeal to the church fathers and to name them to support the exegetical and doctrinal conclusions that he makes. But this is worth repeating, and this is Calvin, I'm quoting Calvin here. Hence, the tradition of the fathers must be examined. And it is a mark of prudent discretion to observe what they contain and whence they proceed. If we discover that they have no other tendency than to pure worship of God, we may embrace them. But if they draw us away from the pure and simple worship of God, if they reject true and sincere religion by their own mixtures, we must utterly reject them. That's a really important quote here from Calvin. A proper reformational view of the tradition. We lean on the tradition. We listen to the voices. In the, that's why we're doing this series. We listen to the voices of the past to learn from them because God's Spirit has been operative in the church for many, many centuries. But we do so by testing what they said by the Scripture itself. And it, if it leads to pure worship, then embrace it and claim it as our own. But if it does not, do not hesitate to challenge Augustine. Do not hesitate to say, Jerome got it wrong there. 
Chrysostom's rhetoric got away from him at that point. John of Damascus was wrong there. Cyril of Alexandria misspoke on that particular text. Let there be no bones about it. They are human, fallible people. Nevertheless, they are the fathers of the church. They're to be honored, they're to be revered, and they're, they're to be studied. Next quote here. In fact, there is only one test today for knowing if our doctrines are valid. What is it? It involves discerning whether what we hear preached conforms to what God has bequeathed us in Scripture. For what ought sermons and doctrines be except, except expositions of what Scripture contains? Truly, if we add the slightest nuance, it only results in corruption. Our Lord has left us a perfect doctrine. Where? In the law, the prophets, and the gospel. End quote. Do you know what makes you and will make me good parishioners, right? Is when what we hear coming out of the pulpit in humility, because we all need teachers, but when what we hear coming from the pulpit, when what we hear in classrooms, when what we hear in various places where people stand up to crack open the Word of God and to do a thus saith the Lord moment, is to hear what we, to listen to what we're hearing and to bring it under the humble and modest scrutiny of the Bible. Do you remember what happened with the Berean Christians? They're lauded in the book of Acts because Paul came teaching them the Bible and they went home and searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was really true. Right? It's a good thing. That's a gift, by the way. It might be a pain sometimes, right? but it's a, it's a royal, kindly pain. Oh, so much more to say. Um, quickly here, for Calvin on the Old and the New Testaments, there's one covenant of grace. This is why Calvin can make what seems to be a jarring yet simple move from the Old Testament narratives right into the life of the church. What's going on in the book of Micah? There's condemnation of Jerusalem and Samaria. Why? Because those chief political and religious centers led to the down, downgrading of the people of God by political corruption and by religious idolatry. And you know what he goes on to say? Basically, well, Samaria is Rome and Jerusalem is Geneva. And we need to listen to what's going on because there's things that need to be said to Rome, but guess what? There are things that need to be said to us as well. And he turns Micah with a kind of immediacy off the text right into the life of what's going on there in Geneva with the people uh, who are in leadership. One covenant of grace. Oh, we should talk so much more about that. I'll let it come back. I did want to give you this. Calvin's Christology is a biblically shaped Christology. For Calvin, Christ is the mediator. It becomes, if I can be a little bit reductionistic here, the primary lens by which Calvin understands the person and the work of Jesus. He is a mediator. And as a mediator... He functions as prophet, priest, and king. And you know what you notice there? Calvin allows these particular topics, prophet, priest, and king, which flow from where? Right out of the, the language of the Old Testament to shape and constrain the way in which he understands whom? Jesus Christ. Because both the Old Testament and the New Testament share one common subject matter, one covenant of grace. How did Moses get saved, if we want to use our kind of language? How did he get saved? How did Abraham get saved? I mean, that's kind of, Calvin wouldn't term it that way, but we'll term it that way. You know how they got saved? By the blood of Jesus Christ and no other way. That's how they were saved. 
But they didn't know who he was. That's right, they didn't. But just like you and I are shaped by faith that is forward-looking in hope, we look back and forward. So the whole Old Testament, realistically, and the figures that are there, are in a position of hope that God's promise to be true to them, to save them, to redeem them, to bring the mediator to them, would in time occur. And though noetically within their minds they may not have understood that, they didn't know Jesus of Nazareth. But how were they saved? By a forward-looking hope and faith in what God would do in the future. They were saved in no other way than you and I are saved, and that is by the blood and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. There's one uh, covenant of grace. And because of that, Jesus Christ is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. Bernard's admonition is worth remembering, said Calvin. The name of Jesus is not only light, but it's also food. It's also oil, without which all food of the soul is dry. It's also salt, without whose seasoning whatever I set before us is insipid. Finally, it's, it is honey in the mouth, melody in the ear, rejoicing in the heart, and at the same time it's medicine. Every discourse in which his name is not spoken is without savor. He's our prophet. Jesus reveals to us the fullness of God's revelation of himself, of his word. He's our king. No, he says, our happiness belongs to the heavenly life. Thus it is that we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, its hunger, its cold, its contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended, we are called to triumph. He's our king. And finally, he's our priest. And that's the primary one for Calvin. It follows that he is an everlasting intercessor. Through his pleading, we obtain favor. In Christ, there was a new and a different order in which the same one was to be both priest and sacrifice. The old tabernacle, the temple, the priest would come in every year of Yom Kippur. He'd go in and he would put the blood on the altar. He'd put the blood on his own self. Then he would exit the building. The sins had been atoned for. Then they'd put the blood on the, that goat that would then go out to Azazel, whatever that is. But he'd go out to Azazel. And then guess what they knew? Next year, same time, same place. And what happens with Jesus in that archetypal temple within the heavenly realm? He goes in as both priest and victim, as both priest and sacrifice. He offers himself, smears his own blood at the altar of the covenant there. And then, and this is the language of Hebrews, and it blows us away. And when he had finished atoning for sins, he sat down. There he is. The high priest didn't get to do that. They had to come out. When Jesus was done, he sat down. And do you know what he's doing for you and for me now? And this is at the core of Calvin's his Christology of Jesus' as mediator. He is interceding on your account right now. Calvin's Christology was a realistic Christology. Jesus was real. Now, right now, is real. Body, fully God, fully man, right now. And in the throne room of God, he is not sitting idly. That's another one of Calvin's favorite phrases. He does not sit idly in heaven right now. Well, what's he doing? He's praying. That's what Jesus is doing. 
He's in heaven and he's praying. He's interceding. He knows your name. He knows my name. He knows the church. And he is praying on our account. And what is he praying? He's showing his scars. He's giving his sacrifice. He's showing what he did for us once and for all. He's our mediator. He's our prophet. He's our priest. And he's our king. All right. I went longer than I wanted to. And there was so much more I wanted to talk about. I'm sorry. We got waylaid. But I, I chased rabbit trails. I apologize for that. Um, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to ask? The, the, no, no clergy are here. So we, we, we do. It's like the mice are away right now. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, the argue, um, that's a good question, actually. And uh, I, I think a good argument could be made for Romans. Um, and, and matter of fact, in, in Gordon's biography on Calvin, I mean, Romans was the first commentary that he published. Um, Calvin really sort of viewed himself as Paul. I mean, that was his own sort of reading. Um, and so the book of Romans was, I think, for, for Calvin, probably the theological center. Um, you're still okay. We're good. Well, I mean, and, and, you're, and it was really such an important book in the Reformation, um, and is now. Um, we'll talk about Romans again next week with Bart. I mean, because it, it was revolutionary. He harmonized the synoptics. He the synoptics, synoptics yes. Um, in, in, in a way, yes. Without flat, I mean, his harmony is interesting because he sets them side by side, but not with the way in sort of flattening them all together. Um, that, that raises a lot of questions about harmonizations. But yeah, he did that. So I think Romans, and then um, his stuff on the Psalms. In the Old Testament, you know, Calvin is fascinating on the Psalms. Um, honestly, he's fascinating everywhere. I, really, I, I, I benefit so much from him. I require my students, when they write exegesis papers at Beeson, to engage a pre-critical commentator. Because I just don't think modern commentators... Cut this out. I don't think all modern commentators really help me get to the theological substance of what's going on. They do a great job describing for me the text. I need all that. I need the nuts and bolts of it. This Hebrew word means this. A cow of Bashan is that. That image is this. And the list goes on and on. I mean, we need all of that. But to press through it, right, to the, to the subject matter of what this is talking about, the thus saith the Lord part, boy, Calvin is a rich resource for that. I, I just find great, re- I mean, reading, I just finished this Micah stuff with my students. I'm just blown away by it. I'm like, I, I'm just actually blown away by the capacious character of his mind, but the largeness of spirit to be able to sense this text and how this text is speaking. So that, what do you think? I mean, the Bible creates problems. It's like, that's an old, weird book, right? It's ancient. It's, it's, but for Calvin, that ancient character of the Bible and his modern context was collapsed. Well, how was it collapsed? Not with necessarily all this hermeneutical craftiness, but by the promised presence of Christ in the Holy Spirit. Jesus collapsed that. And when he preached the word, he was ministering the real live presence of Jesus to the people of God. And he was aware of that. That dynamic understanding. Do you think about that? When, when, you're, when we're sitting at Advent, were you Adventists are here? And like we're there, and it's sermon time. I mean, are we thinking, Jesus is about to be given to me? I mean, we think about that way sacramentally, and we should. But both of those is this Holy Spirit coming down to us to minister to us the word, because the word is Jesus. Right, that's an important kind of notion of the second person of the Trinity. God's word is himself. 
Now, Calvin was very, I think, had a sort of robust notion of that, and it infused the way in which he preached. Yeah. So Romans, Psalms, but I think Romans in the New Testament. One question. Um, concerns about the, how we're deconstructing the Bible, trying to bring the Bible into um, conformity with cultural values. He had such a high view of the Bible, and what's going on religiously today? I'm 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 not good at that kind of thing. I'm just being honest. It's hard for me. I'm not a good sort of sociologist sociologist of American religion. Sort of. But but if you want my instinct, my instinct is we like the new and the novel. What Calvin said. My instinct is that there's a kind of pressure because of the democratization of American religion, right? And um, I mean, at Advent, we're kind of blessed in a way because we've got a long tradition at a, a church like this. But I'm thinking, well, what about these poor free church people, right? I mean, you start a new church, it becomes a kind of marketing campaign. You know, you got to get people in the door. you got to generate some revenue. you got to have people coming. And the problem is, I mean, think about the problem that's within the free church. And if they don't like you, well, they just go down the road. I'll go down here now, and I'll try that out for a little bit. And yeah, I don't really like that. I'm gonna go over here, and it becomes like going to Publix. You know, it's like I'll take some of that, take some of that, take some of that. Um, and so when you do that, you know, maybe there's a real pressure to get sexy. I don't know. Um, and I and I, I I do think that we don't take our cues enough from the Bible to really believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures. To really believe. But the Bible can do its kind of work if you just let it go. And, and the kind of impulse and the desire to be trendy and crafty. That, by the way, that's no excuse for boredom. Right? That's no excuse for the pulpit turning into a, just a, a sort of a raw, detached lecture. I'm not talking about that. But where a minister goes into the pulpit and brings the Word of God with passion because he or she knows that this is urgent. And what these people out here need more than anything else is not something trendy, new, and novel. They need Jesus. And there's no other way for me to really give that to them than to faithfully preach and teach this Bible. I really, I mean, maybe I'm just, I don't know. I just heard Richard Buse at Beeson preach on revival. I got some of that in me. You know, I, I do. It was a good reminder for me. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of a wailing bench person. I grew up that way. You know, like invitation, Billy Graham, just as I am, they come streaming down. You know, I, I was, I was, I preached in a Baptist church about three years ago, and the lady who was one of the ministers there said, "And when you're done preaching, then you can give the call." You know, and I said, "The what?" <laughs> and um, she says, "You know, invite people they want to come and, and, and ask Jesus into their heart." I said, I, "At the time, I was in a Presbyterian church. I said, I, I'm Presbyterian. I don't, I don't know how to do that." Um, so, but I'm not. But I'm seeing revival, like God's Spirit really breaking forth, and people getting converted, like people coming to faith. People who are kind of backslidden in their faith or kind of nominal in their Christianity, the sort of cultural southern thing. I'm a, I'm a southerner and I go to church. I mean, that's part of what I do. I mean, for the Spirit of God to come in and break through all of that and see genuine revival, I, I believe that stuff can happen. But you know what's going to happen? When Christ is exalted. When He is lifted high. And when Christ is exalted, that's only going to happen through the faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word. It really is. And I'll put in the sacraments there as well because I don't think you have the one without the other. Yeah, that's a that boy. That's a soapbox issue for me. I mean, I'm not good at I'm not good at the sociology stuff. And frankly, it's easy with the wealth that we have in our situation. For example, Advent to sort of toss you know stones at the poor guy struggling over there to even make it work. I mean, these these statistics on church plants. You want to talk about depressing? 
was like, even my one of my best friends planted a church in Tampa, Florida. And I said, Chris, would you do it again? He said, I don't hate myself that much. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's hard work. So I know I want to be sensitive to that, but yeah. How, how do you come around to the doctrine you elect? I didn't even talk about that tonight. Did you notice? <laughs> That's what I kept preaching. Did you notice that? Yeah. I mean, and I, and I did it on purpose. How Jesus is mediator coincide. With, with election? Um, yeah, well, don't ask about that one. Um, no, I mean, I think I, I did that kind of on purpose in a way. I mean, not not by intention, but I mean, I was reading a book and I committed to you by Richard Mueller, who's probably one of the leading Calvin scholars of our day. And, and Richard Mueller had just has just published a book hot off the press called Calvin and the Reformed Tradition. And he talks about Calvin. I was just reading this article today before I came over. Calvin and Tulip. And the way in which Mueller ends this chapter is, he said, if we're going to go planting flowers in the Reformed tradition, let's just make sure they're not tulips. Right? Well, the point is, the, the kind of whittling down of the, of the Reformed tradition to that, to, to, do you know what I'm talking about tulip, right? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and then the perseverance of the saints. You know, by the way, what the Arminian flower is. It's the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. That's bad. That's bad. I should have said that. If you're Methodist, it's okay. Don't take that. Um, you know what a Christmas Calvinist What's this? Noel. Noel. I like that. I remember that. Noel. Um, so I, I, but the doctrine of election is important. I mean, predestination was agreed on by all the magisterial reformers. And it wasn't a foreknowledge view of predestination. And that is God sort of foresaw that you would have faith. But there is a kind of determination from eternity past that God would redeem his own, that he would elect his own. There's, there's, it's not always logical. They don't always press it to its final conclusion. Calvin did have a doctrine of double predestination, a doctrine of reprobation, which is a really big pill to swallow. I will go and just say he has some Bible verses on his side with that, like Romans 9, 1 Corinthians, some texts as well. Um, but that might be a place where Calvin's logic went too far. It might be where he said, you know, I, that the, the logical conclusion of positive election is reprobation. And that might be to go too far. Um, but the point is, a, a robust doctrine of predestination and election undergirds Calvin's theology. He assumes that to be the case. That was very much a part of the nominalist tradition that was going on in his day as well. God is sovereign. He is powerful. He determines all things. Um, Calvin was in, within that milieu. Um, and when, so Jesus is the redeemer. He's the mediator for, for the elect, for his own. Oh, is it? Next week we'll do Bart. Um, that it'll be fun, you know. I, 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 uh, yeah, it'll be fun. I think I, I, Carl Bart has just crawled into me, and I, I heard someone say years ago um, to a group of young sort of you know divinity students, choose a theologian or two to make a lifelong companion. That you're just going to sort of read for your life, and you're always going to go to them again and again. Bart has been become that for me. So, um, you know, I've got a lot still to learn from him, um, but maybe we'll just garner some of the fruits of that next week. Yes, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight, and I pray, Lord, that you'll seal these things in our hearts and our minds. Let us go forth in your name to witness to your glory and to your love. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.